Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's discussion, uh, some unfinished business from last week. You'll recall last week we uh, had a chance to talk with Sue Klebold. Uh, her book is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. The tragedy she's talking about uh, is the fact that uh, she's the mother of Dylan Klebold, who, along with Eric Harris in 1999, of course, uh, killed uh, 13 people uh, and wounded 24 others before taking their own lives at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. We discussed um, the uh, book and a lot of related issues, and we had this uh, comment or question come in. Uh, after that, I wanted to get this on. This is from Rita Wallace, who responded to our webpage, upr.org. Uh, Rita says, uh, Dylan stated in the basement tapes and journals, quote, you put this rage in me, end quote. What is this referring to if there was such a good relationship with parents? Uh, so that is a further comment question. Keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com and on our website, upr.org. You can hear that entire interview with Sue Klebold on our website, upr.org. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Should Utah abolish the death penalty? Senator Stephen Urquhart, Republican from St. George, says yes. His Senate Bill 189 has passed the Utah Senate, now goes to the House. As we head into the last week of the 2016 Utah legislature, Senator Urquhart uh, says he's decided the death penalty does not work. Though he says he does not necessarily have moral or philosophical concerns about the death penalty or does not oppose it on the, those terms, he has pragmatic concerns about it. He says death penalty capital punishment is too expensive, doesn't deter crime, turns killers into rock stars, and tortures victims' families who have to endure decades of court appeals. Senator Lyle Hilliard, Republican from Logan, says taking the death penalty off the table does a great injustice to society, law enforcement, and most particularly the victims. He says it should be the victim's family's choice, not ours. Maybe it will help them, he says. We'll be talking later in this hour with Senator Hilliard. And uh, right now we bring on uh, two Salt Lake City attorneys, David and Steve Shapiro, unfortunately whose parents were murdered. They opposed the death penalty. Uh, they uh, provided riveting testimony in front of the uh, committee in the Senate, which was considering this. Uh, so we bring on uh, David Shapiro. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. And Steve Shapiro. Thanks. Good morning. We also bring on Representative Stephen Handy, Republican from Layton. Uh, he joined us last year when we were debating the uh, the firing squad as a method of execution. Representative Handy has an interesting story. Representative Handy, as I recall, your father was a sheriff, right, and, and had to had to provide uh, firing squads. No, uh, yeah, let me let me let me give you perspective. Okay. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Everyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy to have an opportunity to talk about this. I'm actually on the, uh, the just outside the house floor this morning. We're in session, so you might hear the chimes going off. I'm going to have to run and vote. Okay. So we'll, just, we'll just play it by uh, ear. Okay. No, here's my here, here's 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 my thing. So my my uh, my feelings about the death penalty evolved over a large portion of my life. But here's what it was. My dad, my father, was a prominent Ogden lawyer. Died last August 1st, almost at 94 years of age. And anyway, he was on the State Board of Corrections back in the Governor Dewey Clyde days. And this was when Utah was, there was a fair number, just in the 50s and early 60s. So there was a fair number of executions. It was fairly routine. But he told me these stories about uh, how he was always invited as a member of the Board of Corrections come down to the point of the mountain and witness an execution. He never did. It was so revolting to him. But he told me these stories about uh, at least one time it happened that I can't give you a chapter or verse, but it's certainly embedded in me that uh, it was a firing squad execution. In those days, it was it was a firing squad or, you know, hanging. And um, and uh, they would uh, they were very unsophisticated about it, but they propped the poor fellow up and put a felt heart, pinned a felt heart on his piece of felt on where his heart would be. And and uh, ready and fire and 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 uh, and uh, they missed because wow. one of the one of the one of the one of the firing squad members does not have a shell and so they don't know which one it is it's random so they don't you know so that little thing like that so they missed well they had to prop the guy back up and shoot him again 
And so it was just absolutely a revolting, horrible, barbaric thing. And, and my dad uh, was from Weaver County, as I said, and so the, where you where you were coming in here before was he he asked the sheriff in those days. He said, "Well, because where, where the crime is committed, that sheriff gets to bring the firing squad in." You know, and and my dad would ask the sheriff, "Well, is it hard to get volunteers to come and do this?" And the sheriff said, "You can't believe how many people want to want to get on the firing squad." So you know, I have a real opposition morally to the to the death penalty, and that's been embedded in me for a long time in my life. And of course, I'm the legislator a few years ago. I'm the one that asked for the study on how much it cost as opposed to life without uh, parole. And that's, uh, I, I, these are the numbers Senator Urquhart is citing then? For the yes, these are the numbers yeah. he's citing. Now, Senator Weiler is disputing those numbers. What do you say about that? Well, let me just add this. Look, we did a, we did a summer study, and uh, it was it was probably not as in-depth as it could have been. You know, you hear about the $1.7 million more for for uh, the death penalty, 25 years of, you know, appeals. Okay, here, here comes the chimes, guys, real, okay. real quickly. I'll just take care of this. And um, uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, the, we had, they had one analyst on it. He worked on it. He did the best that he could. That, that was the resources. I think it's probably more. I think it probably the number is probably a lot more. Hmm. Just real quickly so before we have to have to go, uh, Representative, uh, are, I, yeah. I'm assuming that you're in favor of 189. Yeah. Oh, okay. Off he goes. He, he's got to got to take the vote. We appreciate him taking uh, the time to be with us. That's uh, uh, Representative Stephen Handy, Republican late. late. And I got his story a bit incorrect, but it, I, I knew it had to do with his, his father's experiences with this. Let me turn uh, next. Uh, let me start with uh, David Shapiro. Uh, you and your brother. Um, not only brothers, but twins, I understand. Correct. Yeah, which is, you know, not germane to this issue, but it's interesting. Uh, and both ended up as attorneys. Yeah, both as criminal defense attorneys, in yeah. fact. Oh, wow. Now, four years ago, as I understand it, in Arizona, your, your parents were murdered. I, sorry for your loss. That's, that, that's shocking and, and, and horrible. It, it was shocking and horrible, both. Yes, thank you. Uh, but but you, uh, you two are opposing the death penalty. We are, and and my position is that certainly professionally, as a as a criminal defense attorney, um, in fact, the organization that I that I'm the former president of, the Utah Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, our organization opposes the death penalty you know, for obvious reasons. But so professionally, I've I've been opposed to the death penalty, and unfortunately, we were put in a in a difficult position where, you know have a little closer contact with the death penalty and what it might mean but but what what I found is that that didn't change my didn't change my position at all in fact it it makes it makes it even more firm that the death penalty simply isn't an isn't an appropriate punishment and it isn't an appropriate punishment because of a number of things but especially the uh, you know the time that it takes for the penalty to be to be imposed is really is really difficult on victims. We, in our particular case, for example, four years ago, a trial date still isn't hasn't been set for the person who was who's been arrested and, and accused of of doing the committing the offense. And, and the, we don't expect that there we don't expect realistically that there'll be a trial for the next year and a half or two years. And that's just the trial. Mm-hmm. And and you figure once the trial's been once the trial's been conducted and then the appeals process begins i think i think in utah people are on death row for 18 you know more than 18 years before the penalty is carried out and that's uh that means 18 years of telling a victim's family oh there's another appeal and oh there's another court hearing and that brings it back into the news and so it's in the news again and here's another story and here's more and just rubbing salt in the wounds that just keep continuing and and going on for decades in the meantime, your your kids growing up, I guess, uh, with with all of this. That's right. Dallas, I mean, yeah. in my situation, my kids were my kids were young. My oldest is now nine, so she was five at the time. The others were three and one, and they'll be growing up in the shadow of this, which means, you know, for their, you know, adolescence and the, into their adult life, that's what they're going to hear. Hmm. They're going to hear their stories, and it's going to come back again and again and again and again. And contrast that with what would happen if. If a person were convicted and sentenced to life without parole, they simply would be put in prison, and that would be the end of it. Sure, there would be a first round of appeals, and 
and people would question whether the uh, whether the trial was was appropriate and and whether it was fair and due process was afforded and all those things and that would run its course and after it ran its course there wouldn't be a there wouldn't be a group of defense lawyers championing the cause and there wouldn't be people you know looking into every single aspect of the case there wouldn't be people that were continually speaking with this convicted with the convicted killer and giving him support and saying don't worry we're still looking at this and we're still looking at that we're still looking at this because again they don't they're opposed to the death penalty so they don't want to see that particular punishment carried out because they believe it's unfair and they'll fight against it and understandably so fight against it with vigor but they'll do that for decades if on the other hand the the penalty is is life without the penalty is imposed if the uh, appeals court says the trial was fair and the sentence was fair, then that's the end of the inquiry. Hmm. Let me turn to uh, Steve Shapiro. Um, do, do you oppose the death penalty on, is it mostly on the on the way that it's carried out? In other words, if the death penalty could be quick appeals, et cetera, et cetera, would, would you support it? No, I, I, I'm not in favor of attempting to streamline the process so that we can do it more quickly. I have some reservations about the penalty itself. But I I think that in conversations when you hear legislators talking about uh, that's the only way that you can bring justice um, to the situation, that always, uh, of course, in the last four years has now caused me to sort of recoil a little bit because I understand that uh, I don't know what they think justice might be, but there is nothing that, that killing the convicted killer can do that would be anything that approximates justice in my situation. Mm -hmm. Justice for me would be to have my parents back, to have my kids be able to have a grandparent. Um, That's, you know, that would be justice. And, you know, were the legislature to allow me to, you know, beat the, uh, the convicted killer to death with my bare hands, that wouldn't be justice either. There, there really isn't anything that can be imposed by the courts that even approximates fairness. I mean, there's no even trade. And because that seems to be the rallying cry for people who are in favor of the death penalty, we need to do justice. I think that's simply a misunderstanding of the situation. And unfortunately, I don't know that you can really know that until you're in the situation that my brother and I have been placed in of having somebody, uh, a loved one who was taken like that. I want to turn that, uh, ask a similar question to David Shapiro. Um, unfortunately, you and your brother do have standing in in, in this. Is you know a lot of credibility. Have it be, being victims, your parents uh, murdered. Uh, do you agree with that? That this this um, because often you hear of retribution and and justice being done, and that that perhaps could bring some closure to the victims' uh, families. I understand the notion, and I understand why people suggest that, and I understand even those people that say. There's, you know, there's no other appropriate way to honor the victim than to impose this this ultimate penalty. I simply don't agree with it. I don't believe that it it won't make me feel any better. I mean, it's not going to, like my brother said, it's not going to bring back the people who were lost. It's not going to undo the damage that was done. Um, you know, people say, well, it, it will honor the memory of the victim if we do this. And in my mind, especially if the numbers from the study are right, or even if they're anywhere close to right, if I were, to, if you were to say what, what might you do with the 1.6 or the 1.7 million dollars extra that it costs to execute this person rather than to put them on life without parole, I would say you want to honor the memory of those who, who have been taken, you know, been taken harshly and, and illegally, who've been killed. You know, hire music teachers or help the homeless or you know build a park or you know there are any number of things that one could do if you're really saying let's honor the memory of a person. Um, that's how you honor the memory of the person, not by immortalizing the person who who ended their lives, mm-hmm. by by showing them on the news and and making them making them known names and 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 carrying on with that for decades. That that doesn't honor that doesn't honor the victim. We are uh, talking on the, this uh, program today on Access Utah uh, about the question: Should Utah abolish the death penalty? There is a bill that's passed the Utah Senate now goes to the House. Uh, Senator Urquhart's Senate Bill 189, which uh, which would take the death penalty off the table, as of uh, Charles uh, beginning March uh, May 8th May 10th rather and forward, we're talking about it uh, with Salt Lake City attorneys David and Steve Shapiro, and uh, we're talking. We bring back Representative Steve Handy. Uh, 
a Republican from Layton. Representative Handy, I believe you can be with us for another uh, five minutes. Yes, yes, I'm here. Uh, had, had to go and, and uh, do his job, do a vote. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, I'm assuming that you're supporting 189. Yes, I do. Yes, I do support it. I never I, I, I'm, I'm dubious whether it will really make it. But you just you just don't know. I just didn't think that we'd get as far as we have gotten. It's, mm-hmm. I'm really surprised and, and really heartened. I mean, look, we, we basically really don't even have a death penalty. It happens so frequently and it is not a deterrence. And the only reason I can think in my mind that we would have a death penalty is for revenge. And these good Shapiro brothers here, you know, they, they, they're clearly they horrific thing happened in their lives. You, you guys don't want this because of revenge, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, right, so. exactly. That's what they're just saying when you had to go vote. So, yeah, it is. Yeah. Representative, is that another vote? Yeah, that's another. Okay. That's another. Uh, that's another. Uh, that's another vote. But okay. It, you know what? It's okay if I missed that one. It's oh, okay. All right. <laughs> uh, so I wonder, you're, you're saying it's not a deterrent, uh, and this, the uh, David and Steve Shapiro were talking just uh, you know, briefly while you were out uh, about the fact that they don't they don't feel it serves the victims' families. It's uh, it's, it's not shouldn't be a matter of revenge or retribution. Um, uh, some are saying, though, if you take this off the the prosecutor's you know palette of, of, of penalties, that it will have a, a deleterious effect. I guess you would disagree with that. Well, is that a question to me? Uh, to, to you, yeah, yeah. First, and then I'll yeah, then I'll you know, treat the I, others. I, 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 you know, I don't know. I, I don't know that it would be. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I just uh, just don't think it's something we should have in our modern, you know. Westernized society. I, I just, I just don't think. So I, I don't know about the, the legal things, but but I know that that's something that the prosecutor would like to have in his or her toolkit. Yeah. You know, to be yeah. holding over someone's head. But you know, I don't know. Uh, let me let me ask. Let me start with Steve Shapiro on this one. What what about that question? Uh, prosecutors would say, if I have this in my toolkit, maybe I can uh, I can be more effective J- just by having that there to you know to, to dangle in front of a, a suspect or. Well, I, you know, having had the experience of also representing people who are, who are accused of capital crimes, uh, I have a little more insight into that. And I believe that having life without the possibility of parole and life with the possibility of parole as possible resolutions, there's plenty of bargaining room there. Uh, certainly life without the possibility of parole is a significant penalty and one which uh, in many ways, there are uh, there are those who believe that it's a more substantial penalty because of what David suggested earlier, the fact that somebody who is life without parole is serving a sentence without the hope of anything else to look forward to. Once the sentence has been imposed and the appeal has been uh, has been processed and denied, the uh, the inmate has nothing to look forward to except for that day when they're no longer able to to breathe. I mean, other than that, they don't have anything else they're looking for. They don't have an army of people who are supporting them and caring for them and telling them we're filing this appeal or we're looking at that aspect of the case or we're approaching it this way, or even the hope that the political winds have shifted and at one point the death penalty may be outlawed by the Supreme Court or elsewhere. I mean, there just really isn't any other hope. So I don't think that the prosecution needs uh, an arrow more powerful than that in their quiver. I mean, that's that's the uh, that is really an ultimate penalty, and then being able to negotiate downward from there gives them all the leeway that they need. Uh, and also, in speaking of deterrence, uh, I think the people that make a deterrence argument for the death penalty must not have any dealing with people who have been in, in, involved in the significant commission of crimes, because I can tell you from my experience, I don't believe that there is for the most part, any rational thought engaged in by people who are committing serious crimes. I don't believe that they sit down for one second and think, well, if I do this, I'm looking at this penalty. If I do it this way, I'm looking at a slightly different penalty because people who are engaged in that conduct simply don't process things the way legislators do. They don't balance it out. They don't weigh it out. And it's not a rational decision. If it were, nobody would ever take that take that choice. David Shapiro, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, specifically on the, the, this idea of deterrence. He, he's right. He's right. People, aren't, people that are committing crimes aren't thinking about the consequences. Um, you know, if, whether that's 
whether that's because they're in drug-induced states or whether it's because they're, they're enraged, nobody's, they aren't thinking through it. And, and so I don't think telling somebody, have, having it generally known that, for example, Utah has the death penalty is a deterrent to somebody here. Um, it's, we don't find that people, people don't move from Utah to go to one of the states that's abolished the death penalty to commit a crime there because it's so much better. It's not like somebody says, well, I guess we better, we better find a better place to commit our crime. Yeah. Because because the penalties are too harsh there, you know our neighboring states. We're in Arizona now, and Arizona sentences much more harshly than Utah, generally speaking. And I don't think people say, "Well, I better get out of Arizona because they're too tough on crime." It doesn't happen that way. Hmm. It's a it's a nice idea, but I don't believe in practice that's the way it works. Representative Handy, um, uh, uh, you made reference to the fact that uh, you made a moral argument, I think, earlier, and the fact that uh, we're seen by a lot of the rest of the world as somewhat barbaric because we have the death penalty uh wonder on moral terms where do you think we ought to get to it is is it life without parole well is the question is the question you know do i favor life without parole over the death penalty is that what you're yeah, saying e- yes these, is it starting yes, yeah. yes i yes i yes i yes i do and uh, you know so i'm kind of i'm kind of a uh, i'm kind of a i'm the first one in utah that's ever a legislator that's ever asked the questions what is the death penalty cost as opposed to life without, you know, uh, parole. So, you know, we did the best we could on the study uh, with, with some resources. I thought it would be more than more than the 1.6, 1.7 million. But, uh, you know, anyway, so, so I, I have a, I have a moral aversion to it, and, but I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's good, good policy because of, mm-hmm. of state funds. And I also just don't, it's fair to the victim's families to be having dredged this out for over 25 years. So, yeah. That's where I am on it. Okay, thank you. Uh, I know you have to get yeah. going here pretty quick, uh, Representative Hattie. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, so th- thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, that. You bet. Thank you. We're talking with, uh, we just talked with Representative Stephen Handy from Layton, and we're talking with Salt Lake City attorneys David and, and Steve Shapiro, who's, uh, shockingly, whose parents were murdered about four years ago. They opposed the death penalty, however. Uh, we're going to bring in Senator Lyle Hilliard later on in the program. Uh, he's a bit delayed. Uh uh, David and Steve Shapiro, can you stay with us a little longer, or, or do you have to go? Oh, certainly for a few more minutes. A few more minutes. Okay. All right. Uh, so I wonder. It's is. Uh, I'm guessing that you're you're hoping this uh, that this passes in Utah. This will not affect your case, of course, in in Arizona. So you're you're looking down the road. I'll start with David on this one. I guess you're looking down the road, appeals and the and and all of that to having having to go through that as victim families. Yeah. That's true. Uh, this is Steven. I think we uh okay. David got disconnected. Oh, okay. Um, and maybe you can try calling him back. Uh, that's that's correct. I mean our process, as David mentioned, is still um pre trial. Um the defendant in uh in our parents case is not yet scheduled for trial. We're anticipating that trial won't happen for at least another year or so and then we'll be you know, 20 years past that probably and this so, is this yeah this is even pre-trial right and the trial hasn't even oh, yeah happened. right yeah. the trial hasn't trial hasn't occurred yet there was there was a co-defendant who was uh in fact just sentenced on friday for his involvement not uh, perhaps hands-on with the murder but for his role in assisting the person who was accused of committing the murder and he was sentenced to a sentence of uh, 40 years to life. And there's another sentence coming that will add 10 years on top of that. And I can tell you that there is a significant relief co- that comes from the fact that that case is likely finished and there won't be anything else to deal with it. And it took four years to get to this point, but that part is over and we can move on from uh, from his involvement. And uh, it makes it draws into focus. How, how nice it would be if the other defendant were in a similar situation and we could say that that portion of the, uh, of the, of the ordeal is over and there wouldn't, we wouldn't be looking at years of trials and appeals and more appeals and stays and what have you from the Supreme Court. Uh, I, and I, I can't even imagine. I, I guess you, you really can't imagine it and, until it happens to you right uh, because we we sometimes debate this on a kind of a dispassionate level um, well, i think that's right and of, and of course uh, we can't have it be a situation that nobody gets to make policy about this unless they've gone through it that 
of course, isn't workable. But uh, taking into account the experiences of people who uh, are in the midst of it or have gone through it, I I have a hard time imagining that that a victim could say that at the end of the 22-year process for execution that they feel like, uh, okay, that was that was worth the 22 years, uh, because again, speaking back about the notion of justice, there just isn't uh, there isn't any way for one to make up for the other. Uh, the killing of the accused or convicted doesn't uh, doesn't undo the harm that was done, and I can. I guess on some level, understand the argument made by those who say, what else do you do to somebody who breaks a law like that? Uh, but the answer is protect society from them by locking them away and uh, and move on and spend that $1.6 million doing worthwhile things rather than, uh, than simply affording somebody process before you uh, take their life. One argument that I've seen uh, put forward recently is the slippery slope argument. Um, this I'll just read this. This is from the comments in a story on this on the Deseret News. This is Icarus in Dallas, Texas, uh, who says, If you think the liberal pro-crime anti-death penalty crowd will be satisfied with so-called life without parole, you're fooling yourself. Abolishing lifetime without parole will be next. Um, even today, the average murderer serves seven years in prison. That's not justice in my book. It's a, that's a slippery slope argument. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, I don't know where... Uh where they're talking about where a murder for seven years in Utah, that certainly isn't the case uh, as Utah now has 25 to life as the, as the mandatory minimum sentence for conviction of murder. So that's not the case in Utah. And even before the 25 to life, people were serving significantly more than 20 years before they received their first board of pardons hearing date. So that, that part of the uh, quotation is simply factually inaccurate as applied to Utah and, and most other places that I'm aware of. Um, as to whether or not life without parole is a slippery slope, um, there's no reason that it needs to be. Life without parole is uh, is an appropriate penalty, and as such, there's no reason that you would need to move away from that. Now, if there were a negotiation during the plea process that would allow for life with as opposed to life without the possibility of parole, well, then that's part of the negotiation or resolution of the case. But there's no reason that uh, that anti-death penalty people would be saying, let's get rid of life without parole next. Hmm. Well, uh, I think we have to get let you go here. Um, we, we really appreciate you uh, speaking on on this topic. I know it's, it's probably painful to even, even think about these things. We appreciate you uh, speaking with us. We've been speaking with uh, Steve Shapiro, uh, Salt Lake City Attorney. Thank, Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss it. And we've been talking with his brother, David Shapiro. Um, Unfortunately, tragically, their parents were murdered in Arizona some four years ago. They opposed the death penalty for the reasons that they've been stating. We've also been speaking with Representative Stephen Handy, Republican from Layton. Uh, He supports Senator Urquhart's 189, Senate Bill 189, uh, which would abolish the death penalty, would remove that as an option for prosecutors um, as of May 10th if it were to pass. And you heard some skepticism from uh, uh, Representative Handy that it would pass the uh, the House. Senator Urquhart says that he has talked with many of his uh, Republican colleagues in the House, um, and he's he's optimistic that uh, this may well pass. Uh, this goes to the House now, and they've got a week, less than a week. We're in the last week of the Utah legislative uh, session. We're waiting for um, Senator Hilliard. He can join us uh, in uh, seven or eight minutes. I just want to uh, read a few comments here, and then we'll go to break. Um, The number to call us here is 1-800-826-1495. I'd love to get your take on this. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us right now, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. As I referenced uh, earlier, Senator Stephen Urquhart uh, says that uh, he's not necessarily uh, opposed to the death penalty on moral or philosophical reasons, but he has pragmatic concerns about it. He says that capital punishment is too expensive, does not deter crime, and turns killers into rock stars, tortures victims' families who have to endure decades of court appeals. He says we pay a lot of money to further victimize families. Those were the sentiments uh, that you heard uh, from uh, Stephen Dave Shapiro. Uh, He goes on to say government doesn't do a lot of things tremendously well. 
This is quoting Senator Urquhart. I don't think it uh, does anything perfectly. So it's odd that we arrogate for ourselves the godlike power of life and death. I get that people can be for a theoretically functional death penalty. We don't have that, he says, uh, noting that it takes uh, decades to carry out a sentence, costs $1.6 million more than incarceration. Uh, Senator Todd Weiler uh, argued that the Utah does not have the death penalty uh, death penalty problem, but has a case management problem. Uh, he says in Virginia, appeals are over in seven years on average. And he's quoted in the Deseret News as saying, if Utah cares about victims, survivors, and costs, we should duplicate Virginia's protocol rather than just punting, uh, which is what he feels 189 would do. He also questioned the legislative report showing capital cases in Utah would cost $1.6 million. Representative Handy, who authorized or... Uh, whose bill authorized that study, uh, says he feels it's probably even more than $1.6 million, uh, that, that it costs more in a capital case than uh, life without uh, parole. Uh, Senator Hilliard, who we're going to bring on in moments, uh, said he would, uh, wouldn't would vote to do away with the death penalty. He uh, focuses on the victims' families. He says that should be on the table for their sakes. They should have the option of uh, deciding. Senator Mark Madsen, Republican from Saratoga Springs, is quoted in Des News as uh, saying, I'll shoot him. I'll pull the switch if they're guilty. But he says he worries that faulty eyewitness testimony prevalent in murder cases and prosecutorial and, and police misconduct leads to false uh, convictions. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to get you another couple of comments from the comment section of the Desert News. Very interesting what people are saying about this. We'll be bringing on... Uh, uh, Senator Lyle Hilliard, Republican from Logan as well. Hope to hear from you as well. 1-800-826-1495 or UPR dot, upraxis at gmail.com. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about Welsh immigrants who brought with them valuable skills that laid the foundation for Utah's early mining industry. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Like other countries in Europe during the 19th century, Wales felt the effects of the Industrial Revolution. Rapid increases in population and harsh working conditions in manufacturing and coal mining led to worker riots and clashes with factory and mine owners. The first Mormon missionaries arrived in Wales in 1840 and had great success in cities dealing with poverty and social conflict. But for many of the Welsh converts, the promise of a new life in America was not always realized. Once settled in Utah, these Welsh immigrants sought to improve their circumstances yet found their old lives were hard to leave behind. Their specialized coal mining skills were naturally sought after by Mormon leaders setting up industries in an effort to create a self-sufficient economy. In 1854, two Welsh miners, John Price and John Rees, were assigned to tap a source of coal located at the foot of the Sandpitch Mountains in central Utah. Nearby the new mine, they established a town called Coalbed, which they later renamed Wales in honor of their homeland. The community was populated solely by immigrants from the British Isles, a little bit of home transplanted to Utah. When a disastrous accident in the Cummer Mine back in Wales claimed 114 lives in 1856, the Welsh miners in Utah were no doubt reminded that the harsh and dangerous working conditions they had fled could someday become a reality in Utah. In peak years, the mines near the town of Wales employed 200 men before giving way to larger, more profitable mines in nearby Carbon County. Those, too, drew many Welshmen in their skills, in 1900, when Carbon County's Schofield mine disaster claimed more than 200 lives, many of them Welsh, those earlier fears of recreating dangerous working conditions were sorely realized. Like many immigrants, Welsh settlers in Utah duplicated to some degree the lives they had tried to leave behind. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. It's a gathering place where conversations happen, plans are made, games are played, and the sense of smell is surpassed only by the sense of taste. It's the kitchen. 
And public radio producers, the Kitchen Sisters, have found this to be the perfect place to collect and share stories heard on NPR and Utah Public Radio. They're coming to Logan in April. They're gathering at the table here in Logan, and you can listen to their stories live in the USU Performance Hall. Admission is free, but ticket reservations are required. For more information and to reserve your ticket, go to upr.org. Did you know that storytelling skills are linked to reading comprehension? In a recent USU study, children who learned to develop their own stories improved their comprehension and vocabulary. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. Should Utah abolish the death penalty? That's the question. Senator Stephen Urquhart, Republican from St. George, says yes. Uh, he says uh, that uh, capital punishment is too expensive, does not deter crime, turns killers into rock stars, tortures victims' families. His House, Senate Bill 189 has passed the Utah Senate, now goes to the House as we head into the last week now of the 2016 Utah legislature. Governor Gary Herbert, by the way, is among those maintaining support for the death penalty. Uh, we have talked earlier in the program with Representative Stephen Handy, Republican from Layton. He supports 189, uh, as do Salt Lake City attorneys David and Steve Shapiro, whose parents tragically were murdered. They oppose the death penalty. We bring now in uh, Senator Lyle Hilliard, Republican from uh, Logan. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you. Uh, so I believe, from what I'm reading, that uh, that you oppose uh, Senate Bill 189. I do, and and I think... There's the, the main arguments about the costs and those factors. I understand all of those. We in the legislature have tried some things to cut down that cost and delay. For example, if there's a death penalty case, the defense lawyer has to be death penalty certified. That's go through special training and work that they do. We have daily transcripts of the hearing so that when the case is over, the transcripts ready to go up on appeal, we do those things. But mine is more a philosophical question. I really think, for two reasons, the death penalty should remain. First of all, I think it should be a call of the victim's families. When a death has occurred, uh, I know the Shapiro case, we heard those, I'm perfectly comfortable if that family wants to step forward and say, you know, we don't want the death penalty in this case. But I think those families who do want the death penalty and want to keep it should. I know the argument keeps reminding them, "Ah, boy, they're reminded of the death of their uh, family member every time there's a birthday, a Christmas party. I mean, it just never goes away. And those who have lost family members, especially as dramatically as with uh, someone who's uh, committed a a crime uh, that would merit the death penalty. Secondly, I think it gives the prosecution some leverage in negotiations. One of the things that that bothers, uh, I think, a lot of people is finding out why. Why did this happen? Uh, Are there other deaths? Are there other things uh, that we should know about, bodies to locate and things like that, especially with serial killers? And I think to simply say to them, uh, uh, life without parole is no big deal. But if, on the other hand, they face the death penalty, hopefully they would then speak and, and work out. Once you get a person convicted with uh, with life without parole, what incentive do you have if they decide to kill somebody in prison? Uh, what if you take them into a medical facility, as we've had happen here, and they escape and kill people in that process? So it's not a simple thing to say, we'll lock them up forever and never let them out. Uh, they still have, and as Senator Todd Weiler pointed out on the debate, it's not cheap to keep somebody for the rest of their life. Uh, medical problems, other things arise that the state all has to take care of. So to say it's, it's quicker to give life imprisonment and then without parole and then look at the costs, uh, I don't think you really can balance it that way. But that's, uh, and I think the majority of the people I talk to uh, support that position. The death penalty ought to be used very sparingly, which it is, for very egregious circumstances, which it is, uh, but yet it ought to be a, a position for the victim's family to have some say. Let me follow up a few of those points. Uh, first of all, the the cost. Uh, so currently, uh, I think you would not dispute the cost. That it costs more to execute someone because of all the appeals. So you're you're arguing for streamlining it, and, and then the cost would be less. 
Well, that coupled with the fact that I don't know whether it really is less. I, Senator Weiler raised some interesting issues on the floor debate on this, indicating that if you have say, someone, say, who's 25 years old, they get locked up with, uh, for life without chance of parole. They live till they're 85. You've got costs of taking care of them, especially if there's medical costs. All of us seem to get medical problems as we get older, and as we're in incarceration, it becomes the state's responsibility. So to simply say the appeals costs are more, keeping someone alive can be costly as well. Mm-hmm. What about the, I want to talk about this, uh, this potential process of streamlining. The, the Shapiro's case, their parents uh, tragically murdered in Arizona, has yet to come to trial four years later. And, and I, I believe they're saying that uh, because the death penalty is a possibility here, that's one of the main reasons why it's dragged on so long. And then there'll be appeals, you know, for many years after that. Um, how, how could this be, how can this be streamlined? Well, I know here in Utah, number one, we require a uh, the defense attorney to be death certified. Uh, so he's gone through the training, or she, so that when they try the case, it isn't some novice young attorney just out of law school who doesn't know what they're doing. That often gets to be the problem, is that these death cases are handled by uh, public defenders who really have very little experience in this area, and therefore the claim is that the defendant didn't have proper counsel. And that's one of the main reasons for the appeal after appeal after appeal that the defense attorney didn't do an adequate job. Second is getting the transcripts done. Most of these trials go many, many days. And to have a daily transcript done means that there's a court reporter transcribing the report after every day. So when you finish day two, when you start day three, the transcript's done of what happened in day two. So when the case is all finished and the judge pronounces their uh, verdict, in Utah there's an automatic appeal on a death case, and the transcript is there ready to go, so it goes up pretty fast. Another real delay has been waiting for even months to get the transcript finished up so the trial court knows what to look at when they review it. Mm-hmm. Those are things I know we've done. We also have some time figures in doing those. And what often happens is one lawyer tries it, another attorney goes up on appeal, he finds all claimed errors by the first trial lawyer. Then the next attorney looks at the errors that the trial, uh, the appellate attorney made. But I think as you look at most of them, uh, as you, uh, you know, it's it's uh, said, once death occurs, it's it's over. You know, you can't. But on the other hand, uh, I think with fairly confidence, people can say the persons on our death row all committed to crime. The other difficulty, I guess, with a death case is, is the act is all the same. I kill somebody. The question becomes my criminal intent. If I purposely killed someone that I thought was attacking myself, so I have a defense of self-defense, then it's a justifiable homicide. If on the other extreme, I plot, kill, I want to get kill somebody for money or monetary gains as part of a robbery, and I torture them and go through that type of stuff, then I think it's pretty clear what my intent was. And the broad range of in between that is what becomes a speculation for the juries to try to figure out what they really intend. I want to uh, focus uh, next on the on the victims' families. You're, you're saying that uh, the victims' families should have the choice. Of course, some victims' families will, I guess, side with uh, the Shapiro brothers that we talked to earlier. They're, they were saying early in this program that, uh, uh, you know, uh, the death penalty will not bring back their parents, and they, they don't see justice being done that way. I, I assume that other victims' families would, would have a different view. I don't know if you've ever talked to... To victims in a death penalty case? and I, I never have. Okay. And unfortunately, I've never been a lawyer on a case like uh-huh. that. Uh, we've had those in our office, and I'm not death qualified. Uh, so I you know, quickly said, you know, this is not a case I should get involved in because I don't have the extra qualifications that they require. But I say this. I don't think the victims should have the absolute say, but I think the victims' say should go very well. I, I'm trying to remember. There's a recent case here in Utah where they were contemplating the death penalty, and the family said, no, we do not want the death penalty. And I know in that particular case, the prosecution said, we're not going to seek the death penalty. Now, I don't know what Arizona is. Apparently, the Shapiro's had no choice in that. And, and, and I think there's probably some cases the prosecutor wouldn't give the family a choice. But I think the family's choice would, would weigh pretty heavily on most prosecutors. That does get into the, the, the moral argument. you know. And I, I talked to European friends who are just aghast that America has the death penalty. Uh, of course, we we view things, at least a portion of the population views things differently 
differently here. But so you're saying that if the victim's families has that view that the death penalty is appropriate, that they they should have the say, or at least a say. I think that that should go heavily on what the prosecutor decides. The prosecutor has to make the final decision, and he may look at the evidence and say, you know, I just don't have a case that I can prove the death penalty, even though the family wants the death penalty. And he, he has to stand up to that and say. You know, I have to make the decision. I'm elected. I have some experience in this area. I'm not emotionally involved in it like the family, and I may decide this is the case not to impose the death penalty, even though the family may request it, because as I see the evidence, it won't. Uh, it, it, it isn't justified. Uh, let me quote uh, Senator um, Urquhart here. Uh, this is an argument that, that you hear that I'm, I guess I'm surprised hearing coming from from uh, some conservatives uh, now, he, he says uh, government does not do a lot of things tremendously well. I don't think it does anything perfectly. So it's odd that we arrogate to ourselves godlike power over life and death. In other words, uh, this is you know this is if if government makes a mistake in this, you can't take it back. That's true, and and I say you have that all the time. Oftentimes, in a jury case, they have to prove the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt in any criminal case. And so oftentimes there are probably people who are guilty that the state just cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty. But in the death case, death penalty case, the burden is so high, the the findings are so egregious that it's rarely that there's a case like this done. And so I think uh, the bandit totally, for the few cases that it sought, I think uh, is not the proper decision for us to make. I think... That's for the prosecutor to make, who's elected to stand before his people. He knows the facts of the case far better than we ever will, because we're talking in generalities. But at the same token, I think the family's input ought to be put in there. And uh, the family could feel really aggrieved, and the prosecutor would say, well, sorry, uh, even though the case clearly merits the death penalty, I personally don't think we ought to have one. And he stands up for re-election. And if people like what the prosecutor's doing, they re-elect him. If they don't, they elect somebody new. Uh, some have said uh, uh, that this would be a good uh, matter to put to the voters in a, in a referendum. Do you do you agree? Yeah, uh, I. You know, again, you're talking generically. I, I think one of the real problems people have with criminal law is that now we we have the defendant, the person charged with the crime, sitting in front of the jury, and you don't know what it was like that particular night when he took his knife out and stabbed and killed and did all that. And so the portrayal to the uh, jury will be by the good defense attorney. This is my client. You know, he's had this background problem, that background problem, and he doesn't want to have you see the victims. He does not want you to see the film or the pictures of how grossly uh, mutilated the body was or these types of factors. Because we sit back in, in kind of a vacuum area and said, well, gee, we don't think death penalty ought to be imposed. I think if we sat and saw the facts that the police see, the prosecutors see as they handle these cases and see the egregious nature of this conduct, then I think uh, they may feel differently. So a vote of the people is a referendum on generalities and maybe specifics they know, but I think it does not really look at the overall picture that a prosecutor and the police have to look at when they investigate a crime like this. Yeah, it, what you're saying brings up something I brought up with uh, with David and, and Stephen Shapiro uh, that unless you uh, unless you tragically have a family member murdered, uh, unless you are a defense attorney or a prosecutor, unless you're a member of the police, you're at a kind of a remove with this, aren't you? And, and, well, you know, I'll go back to a case that just is horrific here in Utah, and I'll call it the High Pike Killers in Ogden. And again, I don't know all the facts that occurred in that case. All I know is what I read and heard. Much of it was probably sensationalized. But I suspect that after that publicity came out, if you were to go through the Ogden area uh, with families who were pretty well known, I think you'd you'd find a pretty strong feeling in support of the death penalty. And so that it's true that we're isolated personally, but it touches all of our lives when we see something that horrific. Mm-hmm. Our our. I don't know. I had a feeling of surprise when I saw this coming from Senator Urquhart. I'm, I'm seeing some, you know, uh, speak, uh, Speaker Hughes. I'm seeing this coming from Republicans. I don't know if you're surprised. No, I'm not. Uh, I think uh, there are different ways to look at different issues. There's a fiscal conservative, and then there's a social conservative. And uh, some people are very, very tight fiscal conservatives, but uh, social conservatives may not be so tight. As you probably know, Senator Urquhart has been pushing the bill 
uh, to uh, on anti-hate crimes, and he's been pushing the bill on uh, on uh, the other more uh, liberal issues there, and and we're all different. We all have different views. Uh, I think he'd be very conservative when he talked about financial issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a distinction you have to make is between those two two different branches of being conservative. And uh, you're in the Senate, of course. Uh, I don't know right. uh, do you have a feeling this is going to pass or not. It passed narrowly in the in the Senate. I I don't know who the strength will be over in the House to really push it through. Uh, Senator Urquhart worked very hard on this bill. I'll tell you, worked very very hard on it. And uh, like I said, he got to, it passed fifteen to thirteen. Uh, had one yeah. person changed their vote, it wouldn't have passed. So now it goes over in the late hours of the of the House, and they need a pretty strong, strong sponsor. Steve, Senator Urquhart, also, this is his last year. He's announced he's not running again for re-election. And so I think there's always some empathy. In the Senate, we're, it's, it's more of a, a friendship group. I mean, we know each other well and know each other pretty well. And sometimes uh, if you're on the, on the, could be swayed one way or the other, the fact this is his last hurrah and last working on this bill, you may give him a vote, uh, not fully expecting it to pass in the House. But I, I don't operate that way. I try to vote what I think the merits of the bill are. Uh, finally, just have about a minute left. Uh, Senator, uh, last week the legislature, do you anticipate any surprises? Would you predict any? Well, I don't. Surprises <laughs> I coming don't, up? I don't know. Uh, there's a couple of bills that were filed the last minute that do concern me that I don't know if they've had another public hearing. One of them especially is is the purchasing or renting this deep port in the Oakland Bay area. A lot of concern about that. And, and the fact that it just came up, it's now still in the Senate. It's going to have to pass here and go over to the House. Uh, House uh, has lots of bills. They have a lot of have much time. I expect if the death penalty bill gets on the floor of the House, that'll take some time. Uh, certainly the me- medical marijuana bills will take some time uh, over in the House uh, if they survive committee today. So that's uh, that's all kind of the issues that uh, you can easily you can easily take up uh, four to five hours on something like this, and by doing that you kill a lot of other bills. So uh, where this, especially this deep port, uh, I'm concerned about how late it came up. I think the budget is pretty well done. There'll be some fine tuning as we get to the end. The governor has some issues that he didn't feel like we addressed, and he's trying to get those taken care of. And there's always uh, those people who come and. Uh, try to find some way to get some money for their projects that weren't funded. So uh, I don't think any major surprises. Well, thanks. Senator Hilliard, Republican from uh, Logan, has been talking with us about uh, the the death penalty and also some other uh, uh, issues that may come up in this last week of the legislature. Thank you, Senator. You're you're welcome, Dave. Goodbye. Uh, We have Paula in Logan who has called us. Uh, Thanks for for calling in. Go ahead with your question or comment. Um, I just had one comment. It, uh, there's a bumper sticker I've seen that I wanted to tell you about that I really like. It says, why do we kill people who kill people to prove that killing people is wrong? Mm, very, yeah, very impactful. Uh, thanks, Paula. Thanks. appreciate that. She was sharing that. Uh, and we'll have to end the program. Uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah today. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.